Welcome back to The Remote Life. My name is Han Torbert, also known as Han Mixed World, and today we'll be chatting with Liam Martin. Based in Canada, Liam is the founder of Running Remote, a conference for remote-first founders and hybrid team leaders, and author of a book of the same name, Running Remote, a resource on remote working methodology, which will be released in the summer. In this episode, we talk about working asynchronously, tips for getting hired remotely, and his predictions for the future of remote work. So grab a coffee, a tea, or something stronger, and let's get started. So Liam, thank you so much for being on the Remote Life podcast. How are you? I'm pretty good. Uh, I just got back actually from Austin, Texas, doing our quarterly retreat, and I'm up here in Canada. It's minus 10 degrees Celsius today, and it was was plus 30 degrees Celsius, which I think is around like, I don't know, 95 Fahrenheit uh, in Austin, so I'm missing the warm Austin weather. No, it sounds like quite the epic adventure. Because um, you you base yourself between three destinations, is that correct? Well, I mean that's debatable. <laughs> Most people who are remote pioneers, people that have been working for longer than ten years remotely, the vast majority of those people ended up working remotely because they wanted more freedom in their lives and they wanted to be able to build businesses while still at the same time having freedom of movement. So. I have my main base here in Montreal, Canada, but I'll spend time in Costa Rica. Uh, I have some property in Turks and Caicos. I spend a lot of time in Bali. Generally, I just kind of float around. Actually, a new place that I'd like to add, I've been there about four or five times. I think I'm going to spend about six months there, is Barcelona in Spain, which is a fantastic spot for digital nomads. And I actually remote workers. There's a ton. There's a really good remote work community there that's popping up. Oh, I absolutely love Barcelona. It's such a beautiful city as well. So dare I ask, where's your favourite spot to remote work from? That's a very, very difficult question to answer. <laughs> I would say that it depends on your headspace. So yeah, I'll put this one out. Playa del Carmen in between Tulum and Cancun in Mexico is a really great location for a middle of the ground remote worker. So it has all of the niceties that you need in order to be able to work productively. And as an Apple store, it has, you're 45 minutes away from the biggest international airport in the world, uh, but then it also has beach and sun and, and a lot of fun that you can get up to as well. And it's a very internationalized city. It's only about 250,000 people, but really nice location and a very large expat community of which very few people take themselves seriously. And I think that you can measure the success of a city dependent upon what percentage of the population does not take themselves seriously. Interesting. Okay. Well, just to backtrack a little bit, why don't we just start from the beginning anyway? So connect the dogs for us. What is your remote life story and what's your mission, whether in life or in business? Or both sure. Of so I was, um, I started working remotely almost 20 years ago. I think it's about 17 almost 18 years ago. So I'm just pushing it up to 20 (laughs) for all the podcasts that I'm doing. Uh, And I started actually tutoring kids remotely. So I was teaching at McGill University in graduate school. And for those of you that don't know, pretty much every first and second year class is not taught by a professor. It's taught by a graduate student because it's way cheaper. And I went into that first class with about 300 students. I exited that class with less than 200, and I got the lowest academic reviews in the history of the department. The department had been in operation for about 130 years, so not too successful on my part. I remember walking into my supervisor's office, and I said, I don't think I'm very good at this. And he said, 
no, you are not. And then I said, okay, so what do you think I should do? And he said, well, you've got to get pretty good at this teaching thing if you want to actually do anything fun in academia. So six weeks later, I threw a master's thesis under his door and I was out in the real world. And I turned that into my first or actually my second business, uh, which was a remote tutoring business. And that business ended up going relatively well until I encountered a major problem, which was being able to measure how long a tutor worked with a student. So I would go bill a student for 10 hours. The, ten, the student would say, I only worked with my tutor for five. I'd go to the tutor and say, did you work with Billy for 10 hours or five hours? He'd say, well, I billed for 10. It was 10 hours. I ended up having to refund the student for five hours and pay the tutor the full 10 hours. And this was really destroying the business. So my business, my now business partner, Rob Rawson, who's the CEO of a couple of the companies that I'm associated with, he had a tool called Time Doctor, which was going to allow you to be able to measure exactly how long someone worked remotely for somebody else. Looked at that business, thought to myself, man, this is something that I really want to be a part of. Ended up working on that for, well, it's been 11 years. And then in between that, running remote really came out of our frustration of seeing the well, post-pandemic, there were not many remote businesses that were really taken seriously, unfortunately. And a lot of them were called lifestyle businesses. And for anyone that's a venture capitalist that's listening to this, that's a very nice way of saying a crappy little business that no one cares about that much. And so five years ago, I was looking at the ecosystem and we were trying to figure out how do we get to 500 people? How do we get to 1,000 people? And there wasn't really anything written about it. There was a ton of information on how to get a virtual assistant or how to be a digital nomad, but there was nothing about building and scaling billion-dollar-plus remote-first organizations. So we took a ready-fire-aim philosophy. I just booked a venue in Bali and uh, said, okay, well, at worst, if we lose a whole bunch of money, but I invite a bunch of my friends over that know this subject really well, we'll become better educated in this particular subject. Ended up doing pretty well. We broke even on the first one. We made money on our second one. And things were going really great until we were running our next event in Austin, Texas in April of 2020. And oh, no. that's exactly the wrong date to run a conference. Uh, we lost about $250,000 on that conference, which was not good for my personal pocketbook <laughs> uh, because you have to pay everyone sure. 90 days out. For you have to pay your venue, you have to pay your caterer, all that kind of stuff. And then uh, with COVID, obviously all those businesses went to zero. They are they got melted by ninety percent. So it was very difficult for us to be able to get any of that money back out. And uh, but we went virtual. Ended up doing all right. We just thought to ourselves at that point, everyone needs this information in their heads as much as possible. I remember, and probably you've had these issues too, the first couple of weeks of the pandemic, I would have like G20 governments calling me saying, hey, we have 500,000 employees and we want to take them remotely tomorrow. And I'd say, well, I have no idea how to do that. And they'd say, well, you're the first, first person that picked up the phone. We're mm -hmm. trying to figure out this information. There's no information anywhere on this subject. So we thought to ourselves, we really need to get this information out to as many people as possible. So we made all of that stuff free. And uh, now we're coming back finally, May 17th and 18th in Montreal, Canada, to a physical event once again. And a lot of people critique me, particularly ones that are not connected to remote work in the podcast space, saying, 
hey, so you're doing a physical event about remote work? Well, yes, we are. Because even though you are remote, you need to meet in person from time to time. It's really important to be able to do that. And we kind of see running remote as that physical space that we can hold at least once a year to be able to get everyone the newest strategies on building and scaling remote teams. Yeah, cool. So tell us, that that leads perfectly into the next question. Tell us a little bit more about running remote, maybe both the event and your book that you've got coming up. Sure. So I've been running it, as I said, for about five years, and it is everything that you need to know on building and scaling remote teams. So what are we not? We are not a place for the employee. If you want to find a job or remote job, this is not the conference for you. If you're a digital nomad, this is not the conference for you. It is for founders and operators of remote first organizations that are more like um, coins, as an example, which is one of the first people that I mentioned in our book. They IPO'd last year at 141 billion. They entered on number 89 of the S&P 500, which is pretty impressive when you go public to be on the S&P 500. And for the first time in the history of the SEC, they've been able to state that their headquarters is nowhere. Those are the people that we're trying to build the conference for, the people that are really interested in knowing how do you build remote, not just because it's going to give more freedom to the employees and the owners of that particular business, but because it is fundamentally a better business model than anything that has previously been done. And I think that the pandemic, if you can find a silver lining, has opened up Pandora's box and enabled everyone to be able to test that assumption and recognize that you actually can build a faster moving organization that's better for everyone when you go remote. Would you mind just repeating the name of the company that you mentioned? I think it cut out when you said it. The company is called Coinbase, uh, oh, which is a cryptocurrency mm-hmm. wallet that allows you to be able to uh, work, hold your cryptocurrencies. And they've been in operation for, I think, eight years and have been remote for the last three. So mm-hmm. they really were. They, they really have become this fantastic company. And I actually believe that within the next 10 years, half of the S&P 500 will be remote. So really just preparing those types of companies for this new way of working is the goal of the running remote conference. What makes you say that? Because uh, in my mind, I, it's something that I've personally been aware of since probably about, I mean, I've been on off remote working for probably the best part of a decade anyway, but it's something that I really became aware of in about 2016-ish when like just as the digital nomad whole phase thing was starting to cut, like come to light. And I'm curious to know your thoughts. Why do you think that remote is the future, if you will? I think that the pandemic, as I said before, was a bit of a Pandora's box moment where there were companies that recognized that remote might be more valuable and might be more useful than their on-premise office environment. But it was a very risky thing to attempt that experiment. It was a massive experiment. So January of 2020, 4% of the U.S. workforce was working remotely. March of 2020, 45% of the U.S. workforce was working remotely. And by all projections, post-pandemic, which is effectively what we're in right now, about 30% of the U.S. workforce is working remotely. Not only that, when you actually tunnel into that data, 75% of workers that make more than $100,000 per year, work remotely. So wealthy workers 
work remotely. Why? Because they can dictate terms to anyone else, right? They can dictate, I'm not going to work in your office because I don't want to. Uh, I want to work somewhere else. So there's that side of it. There's the employee pulling the, the bottom up approach, which I think is going to be very interesting to see over the next year as we move from pandemic to endemic stage. But then the second one, which I think is even more interesting, is the unit economics. So one of the other people that I quote in the book is Darren Murph from, um, from GitLab, who's the first ever head of remote. And he talks about how this is a horse and buggy versus Model T moment. So 1915 was the largest population of horses on planet Earth, right before the First World War. And that also was the first year that the Model T rolled off the production line. It took about 20 to 30 years, but uh, the future had already been laid out. We knew that there was an inevitability of that, of cars overtaking horses, because they were fundamentally, exponentially more efficient at doing their job than a horse and buggy. Remote work has that same advantage. It is 30% on average cheaper, exactly the same salaries. Forget about salaries, forget about outsourcing people, even though you can actually save a lot by doing that, remove that variable. It is 30% more efficient to be able to work remotely and you produce effectively the same amount of output, in some cases more, in some cases a little bit less than on-premise environments. And also when you optimize proper management philosophy, which is actually what we talk about in the book, when you implement management that was designed for remote work and not just recreating the office, you optimize that advantage even more. So to me, I see it as an inevitability that remote work will overtake on-premise office work because it is cheaper for the organization, it's better for the employer, and it's better for the employees. I absolutely love that analogy about horses and cars. That's hilarious. I think I might try and use that next time I'm in a discussion with somebody. But do you think there's also a part of it that's maybe down to lifestyle as well? Like more people are going, right, I can, you know, in the case of the UK, for example, so many people suddenly moved out of London and big cities and the places like that. And they've moved up to move to like their dream home in, say, the south of England or whatever it is. Do you think that plays into it? Yeah, for sure. I think that's definitely still on the bottom up approach. I actually think that the way that you win over large-scale organizations, number one, you don't need to win over large-scale organizations. It will happen inevitably, right? Mm. People will end up, I don't care how much you love your horse, <laughs> there's going to be a day where you're going to say, okay, it's time to put you in the barn because I've got to actually get my car out uh, and get some real work done. So I think that that's inevitable. But the way that you end up accelerating that process is you actually start talking less about the advantages to the employee and you focus more on the advantages to the employer because mm -hmm. they're the actual decision makers that are really going to make this, this transition happen. When I think about where the next most effective deployment of energy would be as it applies to remote work, it would be talking to Fortune 2000 companies globally and showing them the data that uh, working remotely is going to save them lots and lots of money. But more importantly, their competitors are going to completely clean their clocks. If I'm working at 30%, you know, I'm making 30 cents more on every dollar than their competitor. It is an inevitability that they're going to have to shift over to um, 
that other model. So I, I really see it as like a long-term strategy. As I said, I've been doing this for almost 20 years. Yeah. I have no problem waiting another three to four to see this completely play out. Mm. And yeah, just so then going back to your book, like who is uh, remote uh, running remote, sorry, who is that for? Like who is the target reader there? So during the pandemic, you've probably had these questions. So have I. Number one question that I get for a company that's transitioning remotely is should I be using Microsoft Teams or should I be using Slack? Or Mm -hmm. what about Zoom versus Google Meet? And I respond by saying, if you're asking that question, you don't actually know the answer to what you should be asking. And so this was a big issue. When I've looked at most of what I lovingly call in the book, pandemic panickers, so the people that just It was emergency remote work. We just Mm -hmm. flipped over and immediately had to start working remotely. The vast majority of those people do what I call recreating the office as opposed to embracing remote management. Mm -hmm. So the thesis that we have is I study over a dozen billion dollar remote first organizations that that were remote before the pandemic. And the one thing that they all have in common, and I've been able to collect this from the running remote conference as well, is something that we call asynchronous management. Mm-hmm. The ability to be able to manage organizations without necessarily interacting with them. Uh, the person that booked the call with us is uh, by Shali. I believe you interacted with her through email. And I talk about this a lot, but uh, me and Shali work every single day together. I have seven more podcasts booked today. The last time I spoke to her through Zoom or in person was two years ago. So we do not interact synchronously. Mm. We interact asynchronously, Mm. but it allows for me to be able to book eight podcasts a day, as an example, and be way more efficient in my job. And then Vaishali can actually focus on being autonomous in how she actually executes on that particular strategy. Obviously, there's process documents and all those types of things. And we talk about this in the book that you need process documentation. You need democratized processes. You need the ability to be able to measure all of these things asynchronously. But fundamentally, what asynchronous management provides is the ability to be able to manage an organization without actually doing any type of manual management, which is a really interesting philosophy and one that is very effective at building and scaling teams. One of the other things that we found in the book when we studied all of these organizations, is their managerial layer was about 50% thinner than on-premise organizations mm. because they do not require the game of telephone that you classically do inside of on-premise organizations where I tell you what my metrics are, you tell your manager what my metrics are, and then that manager tells the boss what my metrics are. Inside of asynchronous organizations, everyone should ideally have the same informational disadvantage as the CEO of the company. And when you can implement that, it allows for a state of autonomy that very few organizations truly experience. But if you can't actually get access to them, you can accelerate a company significantly faster. The remote pioneers have recognized this. They've been doing it for over a decade. And so that's the exact thing that we teach inside of the book. Nice. Okay. Yeah, cool. And I know you mentioned that, uh, for example, in your conferences and particularly for remote workers and people looking for work, but obviously, as we know, post-pandemic, 
more and more people are starting to look for more remote work or remote positions. Just out of interest, what would be your top tip for being hired by a remote company? Um, or like just something that to keep in mind being taken on by a remote company versus what you might be asked in the usual, like traditional, if you will, recruitment process. I think the biggest tip that I can give someone is become a portfolio employee. So get as precise at what you're good at as humanly possible. In a classic environment where maybe I'm in London and I'm going to go out and try to get a job, how many computer engineers are there? I don't know. Maybe there's maybe there's 20,000 in, in London. But then how many React computer engineers are there? Well, maybe there are 10,000. How many React computer engineers with five years experience are there? Well, maybe there's 2,000. So now we're starting to get in an interesting direction. Remote is a completely different environment. The planet is the job. There are not 20,000 React uh, engineers in London. There are 4 million. So you need to get as precise as humanly possible at what you're really good at, because on the other side, the employers are actually getting more and more precise about what they're looking for as well, because they can be because they have such a large job pool. Now, they have to navigate that job pool. And there's a lot of fantastic companies and strategies coming out to be able to make that process more uh, easier and more refined to be able to implement. But fundamentally, for me, go as detailed and as precise as humanly possible on what you're really good at and very clearly communicate that to an employer. That's probably the best thing that I can suggest to people. Maybe they won't find a, find a job in the fastest way possible, but they're going to find the job that's going to fulfill them the most and give them the longest term career growth. Oh, that's great. So what are your predictions for the future of remote work and what can we do to be good remote workers? So I think, as I said before, within the next 10 years, 50% of the S&P 500 will be remote. I think it's an inevitability. The reality is that when you look at the fundamental advantages to a remote model, it's going to be so much more productive and so much more cost efficient than an on-premise model that you're going to see the world transition over to that direction. Now, what are the implications for office leases, uh, for you know restaurants around those areas, for those local economies? They're going to be significant, but to not actually address them, to simply state that people are going to go back to the office is just a, a really foolish perspective to take when you just look at the fundamentals of the horse and buggy program versus the Model T program. People want to get in cars. Uh, they don't want to ride Bessie anymore. What was the other side of your question? Uh, sorry, I, was, I pulled that face. I was, like, was that oh, enough? Oh, no, I was like, oh, oh, oh that's, uh, I, I love that statement and I'm so on board with it. Um, my other question was, what can we do to be good remote workers? So I think to me, remote work is about trying to create an environment in which everyone can achieve deep work. So what are the things that you have at your disposal? What are, do you have everything at your disposal to be able to solve really difficult problems is the core of remote work and then also by extension, deep work. So optimizing every single individual, including you as a remote worker, to be able to do those things, to be able to have the freedom and autonomy to be able to execute on those problems and deliver that back to the companies that you work for will inevitably result in you being able to, number one, 
be really good at your job, but then also moving the company forward in an efficient way. I've actually just got another question as well on top of what you said before about just kind of the impact on business, office and restaurant leases. So I worked in property a few years ago in the PR team, and they were saying that property and the retail experience, for example, is going to go much more experiential than before. So and we're actually starting to see more of that now, like with the likes of Gymshark have just set up their own um, store in Regent Street. But it's all very based on like community first versus actual like it's more kind of like a sales funnel, if you will. So like you come in for the community, sure. you maybe leave with a product and then you maybe later go buy more. Do you think we could see a trend around that at all? Like with restaurants and like, especially with lots of us who obviously go to cafes and things like that to work. Do you think that could have like... Yeah, I would, yeah, I would say I look at uh, Apple stores as a perfect model for this. So they don't release their numbers on this, but from what I've understood, no Apple store actually makes a profit. So they, they deploy one in a certain location. And if you just simply measure the amount of sales that occur through that retail location, none of them would make money. However, when you drop an Apple store in a particular area, their online sales go up and they measure based off of those territories. What are the online sales? What's the increase? What's the delta in between those two? And that's how they measure the success of Apple stores. So I think every brand now is an international brand. Every brand now will be doing the vast majority of their sales online, and your on-premise locations are simply there to effectively provide customer success and support. I know for me, when I look at a company, I just actually ended up going to the grocery store, and um, it's this corner store that's implemented the same system as uh, Amazon, where you can literally just scan in your login credentials, you put stuff in your cart and you walk out and you don't have to interact with the human being. I think that that's going to continue. And whether that's good or bad, that's just the reality of where the market is going. So to me, every single company right now, even if you're a small Shopify store that makes $250,000 a year, you need to think about that context about on-premise organizations are more of a customer service experience they're not necessarily a profit center. So obviously we've talked a little bit about so how important it actually is, even as a remote worker, to have in-person events. Why is community so important as a remote lifer or remote worker? I think that remote work is, by design, unfortunately more lonely mm-hmm. than office environments. However, someone gave me a really good quote a couple of days ago, which I'm stealing now, uh, which is when you think about arranged marriage versus arranged friendships. People that are put into the same office, it's kind of like arranged friendships, Mm -hmm. right? It's the, why should I interact with these people? Well, because they're in the office and then I'm going to go out for drinks with them and have fun. And I think you actually need to go out on your own and and socialize. And Mm -hmm. a part of that is actually just something like the running remote conference, Mm -hmm. the ability to be able to interact with like-minded people. We also have an opportunity now to be more, People can connect on the weirdest, smallest details. Mm. So a remote work conference, as an example, is something that at least pre-pandemic was a pretty weird thing to meet about. But we can do it now because there's a conference or there's an online community for almost anything that you can possibly think of. 
So I think it's really important, at least for me, creating those intimate connections, that information that you wouldn't have otherwise gotten is really important. I mean, we still have everyone meet every quarter on an executive and managerial basis. And then we do one large team retreat with the entire company once every year because creating those face-to-face connections make remote much more efficient over the rest of the year. Great. I'm speaking of, obviously you mentioned retreats, but is there anything, I've seen, I've seen more and more about like kind of how we can also positively um, impact as remote workers and remote lifers, the local communities we go visit. So whether that is in Cancun, whether that is in Austin, wherever that Bali, whatever that happens to be, what are some of the ways that you also will try to sort of leave a positive impact or leave a positive impression or however it is when you are remote working? You know, I think about this quite a bit, which is, um, I think when you look at the fundamentals of the way that remote work is set up, there's a lot of great advantages. There's also a lot of significant disadvantages. I was, you know, a week ago, someone asked me this question about digital nomadism. And unfortunately, I had to say, I think digital nomadism provides personal autonomy in a way that no one, no one has ever experienced in the history of civilization. No time in history could someone who makes $25,000 a year travel anywhere on planet Earth and, and be able to embrace work wherever they are. But it does have a lot of disadvantages, some of the biggest one being it's one of the most um, environmentally damaging things that you can possibly do. Uh, getting in a jet is the, the worst thing that pretty much any average human being can do for the environment. So there's a lot of negative aspects to it as well. I would say just generally trying to leave a positive impact would be making sure that you are leaving a positive environmental footprint. Uh, so if you're working remotely, you know, don't have an office as an example, uh, because you actually have to heat both of those locations and you have to cool both of those locations. It creates a huge carbon footprint when you think about the long-term implications of that, try to stay in one location or go to a co-working space, some type of shared space that's always going to actually have that costing built into it. And then outside of that, I mean, just in terms of interactions with people, making sure that everyone that you interact with uh, in your office environment, or sorry, in your work community, so the people that you work with remotely, making sure that you give them space. Uh, I think that asynchronous management, not many people really recognize that at this point. There is actually no book written on it, which is why I really was so excited about working on this over the last year and a half, because... um, A lot of people think that remote work is going on Zoom eight hours a day. It is not. I mean, I'm going to be on Zoom eight hours a day for all of these meetings, but it's nowhere near as rewarding as sitting down in front of your computer and solving a really unique problem that no one has possibly solved before. Uh, That's the type of work that remote work is really designed for and is custom built to be the best in the world at. So not necessarily demanding immediacy from any of your coworkers is probably one of the best ways internally to be able to be a successful remote worker, in my opinion. Nice. Okay, a final question from me. Home is where? It's where my wife and child are. Oh. It's where my family is. And, and it's really, we could be anywhere on planet Earth, but as long as uh, I have my, my 20-month-old waking up demanding bananas from me, uh, then I know I'm home. 
Lovely. I love that. Well, Liam, thank you so much for joining us on The Remote Life today. It's been fantastic to chat. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Remote Life. And thank you, Liam, for your awesome insights. You can find links to Liam's website and socials below. Tag Liam at Running Remote and myself, Han, at Han Meets World. And ask us your questions about remote working and being part of a remote team. Thank you so much again for listening. We can't wait to remote work with you again soon.